Verse 4 is obviously about prayer. And I want us to think about our prayer life today. After introducing himself, he said in verse 3, I thank my God. But as I said, the centerpiece of verse 3 and 4, as we have examined last Sunday, was his remembrance of the Philippians. As he remembers them, he's giving thanks to his God in verse 3. And as he remembers them, in verse 4, he is offering up prayer after prayer on their behalf. So his remembering of the Philippians is at the center in verse 3 and 4. Last week, we talked about then how we could say, along with Paul, that I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. If you are here, good. If you are here, just to recap, we cannot think about someone as they appear in our own minds. So if we think about A, if he or she has been good to me, then I will treat them well. If A or B has been mean to me, then forget them. That was a very carnal way of thinking about people. And the context is church. This is Paul writing to the Christians. He's not talking about outsiders. So we figured it out by referring that to 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So when you think about someone in your life, in our church, when somebody comes to your mind, rather than thinking about that person carnally, we have to think about that person through the greed or the filter or the lens of love of Christ. As Paul says, I'm not going to let my past experience control me as I think about that person. Rather, I will let the love of Christ control me. So that was the argument last week. I don't know how many of you tried that past week. There's a tendency in the church that somehow, when we listen to the right sermon, when we figure things out according to the Reformed theology, Somehow these things will just naturally happen to us. But think about this. What I've told you last Sunday, letting the love of Christ controlling us as we remember people, that is one of the most God-like activities that you could do. This is not something that you try. Let me try. You cannot. You could only do this if God gives you grace. This is really a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot give up saying, I've tried it this week, thinking about someone who offended me greatly. But it doesn't work. 
It just hurts too much. So forget it. That makes me feel bad. So I'm going to talk about, think about other matters. No. This will come as you pray to God to show us how we can love other people because God has given us that ministry of reconciliation that He has done first for us. That's all we have talked about past few weeks. Now, with that, we come to verse 4. I've written down a lot here in my note. But if I may, I'm just going to talk to you from my own heart. When you read verse 3 and 4, as I told you last week, you could figure him out, Paul, who he is. Because of these words, all, always, every, all. The man, Paul, is a field man. He's full of the Holy Spirit, full of Christ, full of love. He was a passionate man. So he could say all these things. So verse 4 is about prayer. That he says, I am praying for you. Every time I think about you, I pray with joy, with every prayer for all of you. But I want you to feel him in verse 3 and 4. Let me read again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. What comes to you? For Paul, this prayer talk in verse 4 comes naturally. It's like a breathing, if you could feel him. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Emphasizing each word. It's so natural. It's like he's breathing. He's not trying to make a point. He's not trying to impress anyone. The way I see it is that this is just natural flow, outflowing from who he is. He persists in this prayer because this is life. This is his life, the way of his life. In the early, in the early chapter, prayer comes first. Yes, I understand this is salutation, this is introduction, saying hi. But he says, I am praying for you all because that is the fact. That's what he's been actually doing. So when you step back and think about verse 3 and 4, especially verse 4 today, prayer. I see a man doing this all his life, every day, naturally. He's not saying this to impress anyone, to gain approval of men. But that's how I feel him. So, with that, let's think about our prayer life. Your prayer life. If you are a born-again Christian, prayer is something that you will do for the rest of your life. It should be part of your Christian life that you do every day. And when you fall short of it, most of us will feel guilty. When I mention the word prayer, first thing most people will feel about that is shame. 
I'm not praying enough. Like evangelism, I'm not doing it enough. So you feel guilty. So you retreat back. When I mention prayer, we, we, we don't want to get scolded. We don't want to be embarrassed. But I want you to relax. And think about what prayer is. First of all, where is Paul? Paul is in prison. And you will realize my first point. Confined in a prison, his offering up of a prayer for the Philippians is his ministry in the prison. How can he do the ministry? You and I, we should be doing ministry until our last breath. There will come a time when you will not be able to move. Not much strength. Then where can we find our ministry? How can we continue to do our ministry? First thing that we learn here is that Paul, praying on behalf of the Philippians, is his ministry. Physically speaking, he cannot do anything for the Philippians. He cannot offer up money. He cannot really offer up advice. He cannot really train them or disciple them. Maybe he has done that before, but not now. He's alone in the prison. So when he says, always offering prayer with joy, my every prayer for you all, that is his ministry for the Philippians. Obvious point is that that is not a waste of time. Praying for them is not Wasting his time. But he's engaging in the prayer, knowing that God Almighty, who is omnipresent, could help them, whatever the situation it might be. So I want us to think about Paul's ministry, physically confined, yet he's offering this prayer on their behalf. That's the first point. Second point is this. I thought about what prayer is. What is prayer? Prayer really is, when you think about it, God is omniscient God. God knows everything. So before you pray something, omniscient God should know everything that you are going to say. He knows it all. He has planned it all. He decreed it all. He is going to carry out everything. But yet, God in His providence taught us to pray, that our prayer is used by God to carry out His decree and His plans. There's no contradiction. But when you think about it from that perspective, prayer is this. Prayer is recognizing God for who He is. As soon as you're praying, what you are really doing is, before you talk about your need, God, can you do this for me? Before you do that, your heart is acknowledging God for who He is. Or you should. You are believing who God is. That's why you are praying. So as soon as you are praying or trying to pray, what you are actually doing is that you are recognizing God as who he is, or who say, he says who he is. So what that is, is that prayer is actually a form of worship. 
is recognizing God for who He is, and we call that what? Glorifying God. So when you pray, it's not simply how long I should pray, what languages should I use, or how, when, what time, but it is about your heart recognizing and worshiping God for who He is. So prayer is but an outward manifestation of what is inside. The humble heart that worships our God, the triune God. So prayer is really about your worship and God's glory. And obviously you could offer up your own requests in between. Prayer is about your worship and God's glory. If either one is missing, you are not praying. Only as you recognize God as who He is, you are rendering their worship to God in prayer, and God is receiving glory even before a word is offered. Because you have just recognized God as God, Almighty God, Triune God, Creator God, Redeemer God, So God is pleased when you pray, not because you impressed Him with length of your prayer or the vocabularies that you have used, but simple recognition of bowing down before God. That renders worship and God is pleased. Third one, and my most important point is this. As I read verse 1 through 5, and we've been spending some time in it, What do you see? Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. As I said last week, verse 4 is about Paul's God-centered, Christ-saturated, spirit-filled, heart, mindset, worldview working itself out. That is to say, You cannot separate verse 4, prayer, from the person of Paul who is basically having this life that is filled with God. This is what I am saying. When you approach the prayer, topic of prayer, how do you think about prayer? I think we think about prayer as something that we do. Worship. Serving God, let's say Bible study, missions and evangelism, and prayer meetings or prayer. So we tend to itemize prayer. But what I see from verse 3 and 4, the reason why he's offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all always, the reason why he could say that, not to impress the Philippians, but actually say that is because of who he is. So problem is not your prayer life. Problem is not the lack of discipline in your life, lack of free time in your life. Problem is inside of you. Prayer is weak because what is inside of you is not filled or is weak. So I thought, okay, everyone, wants to improve prayer life. Everyone. 
But the way that you go about strengthening your prayer life is not strengthening your prayer life, but my heart. I have to fill myself with the Word, the Spirit, you know, God, no Spirit. And Paul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, could say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So it is futile to say, let us do number four, verse four, always offering prayer for you all with joy. So let's create another event where everybody could try to do this. I think that's a wrong way to go about it. Right way to go about this is to think about your inner person. Prayer really is about recognizing God for who He is and His glory. So you have to strengthen your inner man. That's how you revolutionize your prayer life. Indirect way. You know, past few years, couple of years, my knee's been hurting. Last year I went to my doctor and she said, after taking x-ray, she said, everything's fine, there's nothing wrong with your knees. But that doctor left, so I had to find another doctor. And I told her a few weeks ago, maybe I'm getting old and my knee's been hurting, really. And she said, why don't you go see the specialist? But I told her, the previous doctor said everything's okay. But she said, I mean, what's there to lose? You go and, and, and go see the specialist. I said, okay. So a couple of weeks ago, I went. And they took multiple x-rays on my knees. And it was right in front of me, so I was able to see it. And a couple of doctors came in and said, I was able to see my kneecap skewed onto the left, to the right. It's not straight. And she said, the doctor, she said, you see, this is supposed to be right in the middle, but your kneecap is this way. Your kneecap is that way. That's why it's hurting. So, oh, okay. The doctor said everything was okay now. I see it with my own eyes. It's really not right. And she said, then how do we improve? How, how, how can you fix it? The doctor really said, to make your kneecap come to the right place, you have to strengthen your thigh muscle and hip muscle. You don't act upon it directly, but you, your knees are, are, have moved that way because it was trying to compensate the weak muscles. It made sense to me because I once heard a pitcher who couldn't pitch anymore. Something was not right with his shoulder, so he couldn't pitch. So he went to the doctor, but no doctor could figure it out. But one doctor said, your problem is with your toe. That is why you cannot give full strength to your toe. That is affecting your shoulder. So when the doctor said, your knees are this way because of lack of strength in your muscles and your legs, you have to do the physical therapy. That's what she said. And this week, and as I've been thinking about this, that's exactly what... You and I should be doing. 
How can we improve our spiritual prayer life? By strengthening other muscles that your prayer life will be aligned correctly. And I am going to talk about a work done by someone else and briefly talk about it. Not too long, but briefly talk about it to give you those extra muscles. I brought the book because this week, as I've been thinking about this, I recalled that someone said, my professor said, the famous figure Martin Luther had a barber haircut, barber. And when Barbara asked him, how should I pray? Martin Luther went home and wrote down the instruction as to how he, a lay person, should pray. So I thought about, oh, what is the work that Peter the barber, that prayer instruction? So I've been looking for it. So I had this annotated Luther. So I've been looking through these six volumes. Where can I find that? And when I came to this section, I was looking at the outline. I found that prayer instruction to the barber. But right before that, earlier, he wrote another work. Little Prayer Book 1522. That instruction to the barber was a simple way to pray 1535, some 10 years later. So I didn't know there was an earlier work by Luther on prayer. So that's something that I'm going to talk about. Little Prayer Book, 1522, by Martin Luther. And this is an annotated Luther. Basically means there's a commentary here and there explaining what this was about, the historical background, and so on. So let me ask you this question. If you were Martin Luther, how would you go about doing the Reformation on prayer? How would you do that? 1517, 95 Theses get the whole thing set in motion. But when I was reading the introduction by this scholar, I really didn't know that medieval Christianity... I always thought about in sacramentalism of the medieval Catholicism. But she explains that the medieval prayer life was really a vibrant one and, and really popular one because it has ties back to the monastic lifestyle. And it talks about all kinds of devotional books, even in the medieval times. How you, I mean, you could have picked up a QT, quiet time books or devotional books. They had that. So the vast majority of people would practice their Christian life in a wrong way. Here is Martin Luther. How can you strengthen or reform uh, the prayer life in medieval Europe? Right, that's a good question. What would you do? How would you, what would you write if a publisher approaches you and says to you, can you write a book on Little Prayer Book? 
Can you teach the lay people? How can you fix the theology and practice of prayer? What would you do? What would I do? But I'm going to introduce to you what Martin Luther did so that your prayer life would be aligned correctly. These, these are the extra muscles that will pull your prayer life into right place. Surprising to me was that his prayer book does not contain a sample prayer. Like Book of Common Prayer by the Anglican Church. Sample prayer after sample prayer. No. He has three sections. Generations after, people just keep adding onto it. But in the end, Luther says, Reformation on prayer life was successful. He does not say that often. But as far as the Reformation on the prayer life, we are successful on it. How did he do that is the question. He uses three sections. First, he begins with the Ten Commandments. Second, the Apostles' Creed. The third, the Lord's Prayer. Fourth, Hail Mary Prayer. And there are a few other things. So I say, what is the reasoning behind? How would you reform a prayer movement? Where do you begin? He begins with ten commandments. I'm not going to go into all the details, but he says this. For this reason, we begin with the commandments, that's ten commandments, to teach and perceive our sin and wickedness That is a spiritual sickness that prevents us from doing or leaving undone as we ought. So he expounds the Ten Commandments to teach about prayer. And after reading that section, I wrote it down. That's right. Ten Commandments teaches you the right attitude of your heart toward God. You see? He does not say, you know, this is how you should pray. This is what time you should be praying. How often you should pray. How loud you should pray. He doesn't start with that. You know, problem really is your pride. To break down your pride, I am going to begin with the Ten Commandments. I want you to see simply how wicked you are. How destitute you are. How spiritually poor you are. And apart from God's grace, you are nothing, he's saying. Wow. How we do not pray because of our self-sufficiency. But he breaks it down, not by human words, but he talks about Ten Commandments. What is surprising to me was that, as I was reading it, he talks about what it means to break the commandments. And then he says, This is how to fulfill the commandments. Where do we find that? Westminster Confession. This is how you break the Ten Commandments. But this is how you fulfill the commandments. But I see that in Luther as well. It's not simply the Reformed. But Luther, in his early years, he has already figured things out. Now, 
He moves after that. He moves on to the the Apostles' Creed. John Calvin talks about it too. Luther talks about it too. How could the Apostles' Creed? And that was one of the reasons why I decided. Okay, we should go back to the Apostles' Creed in our worship service. And he talks about the Apostles' Creed to strengthen your Christian life. And after I read the first section, I understood. Ten Commandments, I was like, oh, okay. But when, the, when Luther started explaining the Apostles' Creed section, I understood what he was doing. Let me read a couple of sentences from there. First part of the creed, that is Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and the earth. And he writes under it what that means. By the way, this is how I want to help you in your prayer. This means, and he explains, I renounce the evil spirit, all idolatry, all sorcery, and all false belief. I place my trust in no creature, whether in heaven and on earth, and so on. And the rest of the explanation on the first line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, it really touched me. And listen to these words. I would believe in God not a bit less if I were to be forsaken and persecuted by all people. I would believe in God no less if I were poor, unintelligent, uneducated, despised, or lacking in everything. I believe no less, though I am a sinner. I do not ask for any sign from God to put God to the test. I trust in God steadfastly, no matter how long God may delay, and prescribe neither a goal, nor a time, nor a measure, nor a way for God to respond to me, but leave all to God's divine will in a free, honest, and genuine faith. If God is Almighty, what could I lack that God could not give or do for me? If God is God, God can and knows how to do what is best with me. Since God is Father, God will do all this and do it gladly. I am only reading a few lines from it. And after reading his explanation of the Apostles' Creed, I wrote it down. Aha! He is raising our confidence in God. And in turn, that boosts my prayer life. The reason why we do not pray is because our sense of confidence in God is weak. But as you have heard from Luther, I believe in God the Father Almighty. What you are really confessing is all of that he just explained. I will not put God to the test. I will believe no matter what. I will leave it all up to God's will. And I am confident as God is my Father, He will treat me well. That confidence. And I was reading it a couple of times. I saw my heart being, you know, enlarged. Discouraged heart will not pray. The heart that has lost confidence in God will not pray. But what Luther is doing is Ten Commandments, you are nothing. There's no good in you. 
Apostles' Creed, I want you to put more confidence in God as you confess these things. And I am skipping all of that. And he goes into the Lord's Prayer. And he explains, this is what it means. This is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. And so on. And the Hail Mary, I was so surprised. I was like also so surprised. Ave Maria. The Hail Mary, maybe after all he was, I thought, Catholic. But what he's doing is that Hail Mary, that prayer was a common prayer that was taught to the people. What Luther is doing is that he will still adopt Hail Mary, but changes all the meanings to it. He's explaining it in a gospel way. He said, you shouldn't do that. I know you've been doing this, but that's wrong. This is what you should be doing. And the comment by the scholar says, he wanted to encourage evangelical prayer. Rather than dismissing this popular prayer, he will still maintain it, retain it, but will fix the theology in it. Wonderful. So today, we talked about prayer. Strengthen your inner man. Put more water into you. Prayer life will follow. How is your confidence level in God? I wish you could read the words of Luther. Really powerful. Really powerful. He's a preacher. He's a writer. Maybe you could look it up. And as my heart was more filled with joy and confidence in God, I was able to say verse 3 and 4. Right. Indirect way. I hope and pray that by God's grace, you could say the same with Paul. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He could say that once again, because his inner man was full of the Holy Spirit. I pray that will be the case for you. And by next Sunday, you will come and say to me, Wow, it really helped me. Let's pray.